If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Show Me How Good It Gets. I'm your host, Malvika. Hello, 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 beautiful people. How are you? What is up? Thank you for tuning into the pod today. I feel so thrilled that you're here because I had a lovely conversation with our guest today, and I feel really inspired about the podcast in general because of it. You are about to listen to a conversation between me and my friend Natasha, who is a senior reporter at TechCrunch, covering early stage startups, VC trends, and different networks that play into founder success, everything from loneliness to immigration. I met her on Twitter, where she has amassed over 40,000 followers, writing about startups and VC and emotions. She also has a Substack, which I will link below because after listening to this conversation, I am sure you will want to check it out. She has her own podcast called Equity Pod for TechCrunch, and I just think she's an absolute powerhouse of a person. We talk everything from career advice to being the child of immigrants, um, everything from brown girl guilt to what it's like putting your writing out onto the internet. And she is just like a lovely human being. And I feel so lucky to have gotten to have this conversation with her. And I hope you all enjoy it too. As always, if you listen, you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything, shoot me a DM. I'm always happy to chat. Enjoy. How are it's you doing It's such today? an honor. Yeah. It's such an honor. Um, thank you for being patient with my internet issues. And it is just so fun. I, I want to interview you. So I feel like it's going to be a two-way interview at the same time since I'm a journalist and I can't. I can't stop myself sometimes. Yeah, that's amazing. I've been following you on Twitter for like, I think a year now. Do you want to tell the people listening a little bit about yourself? What are you up to on a day-to-day basis? Goals, dreams, hopes, all of it. Oh my God, all the things. I am a senior reporter at TechCrunch. I've been tweeting since I got my first full-time job in journalism uh, when I was in college in Boston. And I mean, yeah, I feel like I've always just been a very like writer, creative writing and online person. So it's kind of wild to now be at a place where I have like a pretty sizable and audience that I'm proud of. And I get to do it every day for my job. It does not get old. Um and yeah, I just feel like as for as long as I could remember, I wanted to be a journalist because before that I wanted to be a creative writer. And I kind of Googled, 
I kind of Googled like professions with creative writing because my parents said creative writing couldn't be my full time job. And journalist was the first thing that came up. And I like and I it's not even a cheesy story. It's truly what happened. I just picked journalism and went with that since sixth grade. So kind of boring in a way that I've always wanted to be a journalist. No, I think that's amazing. I think that's calling. And now you have this audience that really respects you and looks to you as like a beacon in the space, which I think is so impressive because I think like specifically tech and VC is very much like there's things constantly happening and you need to be on top of it to be known as someone who can like really um, be on top of their game, right? Like every time I want to know what's happening, I look at your Twitter account. And I think that's oh, thank you, <laughs> amazing. And it's like specifically so exciting because I feel like a lot of people who succeed in the tech VC space are often um, white men who went to business school at like a a top three name business school right so like how do you feel being a woman of color and I hate to like play identity politics here but I do think it matters in uh, spaces which are so male dominated and so elitist right yeah and I I think it's such an important question even though I similarly get tired of asking it when I interview people like I'm always surprised by the diversity of answers I know for me it was this weird process where when I first started doing tech journalism it was a completely different world than writing um for like before that I was at the Boston Globe and I was writing very like local neighborhood feel-good stories which were for everyone well tech suddenly my audience was all white men and I felt like the best way to grow an audience and to grow trust was to network with said white men and amplify their voices and I think it took me after kind of my first year of reporting in this world for realizing that it wasn't necessarily cliche for me to focus on diverse historically overlooked people as the main sources of my story I I would up until then I was kind of avoiding it because I was like everyone's gonna think that I'm playing favoritism or that of course the brown girl is writing about brown girls and so it took me a second and I feel like the moment I stopped kind of trying to amplify the voices that already were perfectly packaged onto Twitter, I felt like I was doing a much better job. And I I feel like the impact was still there. And I kind of wish I knew that it would have been there all along, but I didn't until I kind of got tired of hearing the same three answers to my, to my questions. Yeah. Do you feel a sense of imposter syndrome at all? Cause I know now people are asking me that as a grad student Mm. and it, I think they want me to say yes. And I, (laughs) I, I don't really, because I feel like I'm working really hard and I'm really well read and I deserve to be here. So I'm for the first time in my life, not feeling imposter syndrome, even though it is like a space that's especially my CS classes are very dominated by like Asian men. And so how do you feel like navigating, navigating this world? Yeah. I mean, first, let me say, like, I feel like it's amazing that you don't feel imposter syndrome. I think that like a lot of times people need someone else to tell them that. So the fact that you've come to that conclusion is so important. And I I feel similarly, like I, in a way it's also though, it's hard when I give advice to other people looking to break into the field because I have this story where I've wanted to, I've, I've truly wanted to do this since I was in sixth grade and every class I took in college, the major I did, the internships I had were all building toward this. And I don't necessarily think that's realistic or even needed when trying to break into it. I'm sure you have something similar where you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, like I had this unique route. I don't think it's like easily replicated, not because I'm special, but because I was lucky to have to know what I wanted to do. So I think it's imposter syndrome when I'm giving advice, weirdly, but not imposter syndrome of why I'm here. Yeah, I feel so similarly. I feel like I I don't think I'm good enough to like be the guiding light, so to say. Right. But I do feel like we're both smart women. I mean, I see how you 
speak about things. And I think like you're, you have such a tricky job to be, you have to kind of be on your A game all the time, right? Because news is constantly happening. Ooh, yeah. And like, I'm so in awe of you and you have to have such a vast and deep understanding of the space. So I think what you're doing is freaking awesome. Thank you. It honestly is such a like weird learning curve because I think a huge difference for me, like comprehension wise just happened when I realized a lot of the people I think are really smart in the space are saying things that I know and have heard, yeah. but in just like a really smart, engaging way. And not to say I don't know what I'm talking about, but like I became a much better podcaster once I realized <laughs> that I could just kind of tell people what my story was about instead of trying to come up with like the hottest take. And I feel like that's such a weird part of in my profession of everyone feels like they need to have a hot take. And it took the pressure off when I realized it was just kind of how you say it. And if you provide framing that's like enough. Uh, we have weird, like high standards of like, I think that happens when you're a brown woman or not the one diverse person. You want to be like the best at everything. Yeah, which is completely unrealistic. Um, but freaking senior reporter at TechCrunch, that's amazing. <laughs> like I, I am so proud of you. And uh, what's the best Thank career you. advice you've gotten or you give um, to people looking to break into this? Because I think increasingly I get like more DMs from young women thinking about going to engineering yeah. or CS or business. Or spaces that like you need to have a lot of confidence in and make friends fast to kind of remain and feel happy in, right? Yeah, I I think there's like really good advice I've gotten and really bad advice I've gotten. So maybe I can start with the good. Yeah. Uh, the good is that your first 500 stories don't count. And I think you can take that in kind of a figurative way if you want, if you're not a writer. But oftentimes I'll get messages from people who want to break into journalism or just be a writer full time. And they're thinking about all the reasons why they shouldn't, but why they care. And I just have to keep telling them, and I mean it in the kindest way, not to take themselves too seriously. And that truly, like your first 500 stories, this is what my professor told me in college, don't really count because not because no one's reading them. I'm sure there are, but that, that, think of that all as like drafts to get to like that story that really matters and that you really find your voice. And I feel like we have a chance when we're new to explore and to make mistakes and to have like imperfect half-baked ideas, but just starting and letting yourself kind of have an uncomfortable start, I think is the reason I was able to do tech journalism. And the reason I'm like, you know, I started like many shitty podcasts before <laughs> I got on equity at TechCrunch and I did a lot of creative writing until I started my blog. And so I feel like, I don't know, if, if the more people should just like kind of start, the better I think they would feel versus kind of telling them all the reasons they shouldn't. Totally. I think one of my favorite stories that I repeat to myself a lot is yeah. it's in Atomic Habits by James Clear, but it's the story of this professor of fine arts at I think University of Florida. He divides his photography class into two groups and he gives one set of people an assignment, which is take 100 photos. If you take 100 photos, you get an A, 90 photos, you get a B, 80 photos, you get a C, so on. And the other group, he tells them, get one perfect photo. And by the end of the semester, the group that's learned way more is the group that took the max amount of photos, took 100 photos, because you're perfecting your craft and you're learning as you go, right, about like lighting and composition and color and all this stuff. And I think it's the same, again, like you're saying with journalism of like, the more you do it, you get the practice and you get the confidence to just be like the best you can be. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I feel like, of course, it's like this shitty feeling when you only when you take 100 photos and you're not super happy with any of them being like yeah. the front page of the Times. But I also think like just to be able to even do that feels pretty insane to me. And I feel like if I if, if like 
you kind of should be embarrassed of like your first picture you ever take or first story you ever write or, or else it means you're not really challenging yourself. Like I cringe looking at even last month's stories sometimes that I write. So I feel like to have like a sense of humility, but also confidence is like the dream. And I'd be lying to say like, it's always what I think because I'm, you know, currently and always going through career like stresses and am I doing enough? But I imagine the fact that I do it and have to do it now for my job, it has helped me uh, become like a better creator at large, not just as a reporter at TechCrunch. Yeah. And sixth grade, you would be so proud that you're here, <laughs> right? Like, I think we're constantly, especially as like ambitious women, we're constantly looking forward or at the lack that we've achieved so far when actually like our past selves would just be in awe of the fact that we're here. Yeah. Like you, like you applied to this PhD program and I feel like the, I saw your TikTok about this and I feel like it's like just remembering like what you used to be stressed about and how that changes. Like it's so natural for humans to be stressed um, and find things to latch onto to be worried about, but it's so helpful to be like, where was I one year ago? Yeah. And it's, it's like a beautiful feeling. And I think like, if you're not cringing at yourself a year ago, you're not really growing. So, and you're constantly getting better. I'm constantly getting better. I think that's that's like the beauty of it all, right? Um, yeah. And then I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit, maybe, to talk about the fact that in your Twitter bio, when I first followed you, it says, um, I want to write a book. And like, yes. I think that is such a beautiful manifestation of your career goals. <laughs> um, that that was like just something that drew me to you so instantly was like, yeah, you're you're killing it in the space you're in and you have like goals for the future. Specifically, I think very creative goals, right? Writing a book is like a, a financial decision. It's an emotional decision. It, it is so beyond just like what you're doing right now in um, journalism. And we're both um, the children of Daisy immigrants. Yes. And I've like grown up with this instilled sense of like, you need to strive for stability. We were talking about this before we got on the call of like, that is the goal, right? Like the goal is a stable job, a stable income. That's what like my parents moved to this country for and gave up so much for. How do you feel your relationship with stability has evolved or like continues to change the more you have like creative goals, like writing a book? Oh man, that's such a good question. And I honestly haven't been asked about stability in so long. I think, you know, going back to me even choosing this career path in the first place, it was because my parents said creative writing could not be my full-time job. So in the background, it's always kind of been journalism was the more stable answer at that time. And then now as I want to write a book, having a full-time job has been my answer. And so it is this constant tension, as you really well pointed out, between like, do you pick stability or do you pick ambition in a way? And I've had to come to peace that like, my ambitious pursuits such as writing a book are not going to be something I do as fast as I want to or think I should as a result of wanting to have a full-time job and wanting to have kind of this stable every day. Um, but to like even put it a little differently, I constantly struggle with, is this the right time to be trying to write a book? Like, should I wait till I win an award or wait till I'm known as the thought leader in a very specific space or wait till my personal blog grows to 10,000 subscribers before I try and convert that audience into readers of a book? And so I think it's this weird thing of like, even when you're confident and feel like you're building towards something and have patience, you also realize that like, there's always more to grow, if that makes sense. Totally. How do you find time to still be still be creative and like flex that muscle? Oh, yeah. I So Emma Chamberlain actually did like a really good 
podcast about this recently where she was like, it was really hard when she was producing YouTube videos on a weekly basis because she felt like she had to always churn out things mm-hmm. in a seven day time frame. But in reality, if you consider editing, it's like she had two days a week to think of an idea, execute, record, and then it would the editing would begin. And I feel like after I heard that, I was like, yeah, like, unfortunately, my most my best writing and my most ambitious ideas are not something I'm always pursuing. Um, And the only way I've really been able to like break free of feeling like I need to produce something great on a weekly basis or even make time for it is, is, is think of it as like self-care in a way Um, and not in like a workaholic way. I just feel like my blog, for example, I'm using as like the rough draft of my book and I think once I've stopped thinking of like, I need to be this reporter and I need to be a, on Twitter and a podcaster and a, a writer at large, but can these all these things fit together? I felt a little better about it. Um, yeah. If that makes sense, like, I, I guess like I think of every day I'm kind of doing it and I need to tell myself that or else I'll feel like I'm not being creative. Like even when I'm checking my email, I am working on my ability to parse through information quickly. Or when I'm tweeting, I'm working on my framing. And I think that's just helped me start to feel a little bit more confident about making space for these things. Because we're really, I'm sure you get this too, where it's like, it's really easy to convince yourself you're not doing work if you're not doing work in a way that's easily quantifiable. So I'm trying to work on that right now. <laughs> yeah. And how how are, you're juggling so many things that I'm in awe of and I'm like constantly it's hard because I'm constantly trying to get better at like productivity, but I'm also constantly trying to like be sane. And often those are yes. at odds with each other. And then if I'm not productive, then I feel like, well, then I have to be creative. Um, and if I'm not creative or productive, then I'm wasting time. So like, yeah. I constantly feel like I'm, I'm losing a battle, but I don't even sometimes want to be playing the battle. I want to like lay down and veg out and like watch TV or, you know, whatever it may be like, and how do you, how do you juggle like, this constant feeling of and I guess everyone has it but like I'm not doing enough especially when you have like goals that maybe you're not actively working towards but you're passively working towards like like you said like Twitter is a creative thing to be able to pull people in and teach them something in that few amount of words but how are you juggling that I think the moment I realized that you can't really like scam or fake your way to being a more mature and like experienced person I started feeling like the balance became a little or the 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 imbalance the natural push and pull between some weeks I work out every day and some weeks I don't or some weeks I journal and then some weeks I don't like it's made it a lot easier because I've realized that like otherwise I'll become this like yeah in a perfect world and I do all these things I kind of become a two-dimensional person where I'm like productive but like am I really a person the pandemic gave us a weird relationship with that too because we started recognizing ourselves as these people who could sit at home every day and only do that and so I don't know I feel like my best stories in a cheesy way came from like walking around in Boston when I was first starting out and I feel like I always go back to that as like I need to walk around literally and figuratively in order to like actually be a person you know what I mean (laughs) I completely know what you mean I like my non-negotiable is one walk a day which I'm sure like winter in Chicago will change but yeah I know (laughs) like I had my walks in I lived in Somerville during the pandemic and so like just walking across the Charles like on the Harvard Bridge I mean it's just like the most freeing thing is going on a walk like listening to music or calling a friend and just the act of moving forward and sifting through your thoughts is so beautiful and like I highly recommend to everyone it's like a therapy walk totally is yeah exactly and and now that we lost commutes I don't know if you're commuting to class 
too often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm walking just to and from class, and that's an hour of walking every day. Yeah. Oh my god, that like that's so huge. I think because otherwise yeah. we, we we become these people who never really process. We just like produce, and yeah. that to me is like the my biggest fear because I just I I don't know. I feel like my best ideas for even like let's take away stories or even things you ever see publicly from me. Like I myself like feel like I I learn more about myself when I like stop trying to produce all the time because it's not human to be able to produce without like living at the same time so easier said than done of course but it's I don't know as I I I feel like remote work has made it so much harder yeah because there's no separation there's like no church and state right like your church is in your state like everything tries to get like muddled up totally um and like another thing with this idea of stability which I'm now thinking about is I feel this sense sometimes of like immigrant child guilt of either like moving away from home and moving away from my family or like if I am doing something that's not lining up with like my career goals, I feel like, you know, my parents have given up so much for me. And if if I do this thing, like, am I not making good use of everything they've given up for me? So do you ever feel like this immigrant child guilt at all? And like, how do you grapple with that? I think the guilt is new that now that when I go home, I realize my parents are getting older. And I don't think I've fully processed it, if I'm being honest. I think. How old are you? I'm 26. Oh my God, you're so young and you're a senior reporter. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) How old are you? You are like also super young, correct? I'm 22. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I saw, I could, I could have sworn I was like, she's either 21 or 22. That's insane. And you should be so proud of yourself for being in freaking Chicago, getting a PhD. Anyways. Um, (laughs) I, I think like we're, we're probably going through a similar thing where it's like, we're no longer these angsty people who are like, you know, I hate my mom and dad and I hate my parents or I hate my situation at home. And I think coming home is pretty uh, emotional now for me. And whenever I leave is emotional. I live in San Francisco. My family lives in New Jersey. My partner's family lives in uh, Ohio. And so I think we constantly have our hearts in different places at all the time. And I think the like the guilt is making me want to move closer to home. I just think that like these are my selfish years. And someone gave me advice recently where they said like, this is when you make your network. And once you have a family, if you want one, and once you live closer to family, if you want to, that's when you cultivate and kind of take care of that network. But try and say yes now while it's still somewhat easy to. So I'm trying to embody that more, but I would be lying to say if I wasn't thinking about moving back to the East Coast constantly yeah. to be closer to them, to help them. It's 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 not that I think like my creative field is necessarily something that they're worried about anymore. I think, thankfully, because I took it so seriously, they believe that I'm able to do it. But I think it's I think it's just like the lack of being around them and our culture being so about collectivism and family that makes it hard. Yeah, and I really believe like America has a lot of um individualism rooted in the culture which I always see myself making it makes me a lot sadder versus like living with my family living in community and yeah it's a huge goal of mine to move back home or or like to move near my parents essentially like yeah see them on the weekend for dinner and stuff like that and it's like now something I can see becoming a priority for me by my late 20s but yeah it's and like your selfish years are hard right because it doesn't mean you don't feel sad or lonely or right. all of those things at the same time. Um, and I sometimes I think about like, is this like really cold of me to be, you know, so far away and like doing things on my own? But yeah, it's a it's a tough push and pull, give and take. Yeah. 
I know. And honestly, I hate flying too. So I think that makes it very difficult. I, I think my, so like our, our, all of our parents, like they moved so far. And so I try, I always make, make, make myself feel a little better by saying I'm a five hour flight versus like a 15 hour flight. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I feel like their take has been interesting because like I have some friends whose parents are like, you need to be close by and like there's, you know, you shouldn't go anywhere. But my parents have been super supportive of me being far away, I think, because they know I'll come back and they're just like, it, wh- why would we leave if not for this? Like, why would we push you if not for this? And so it, that's that was such a big surprise for me when they were like, yeah, go to San Francisco. It's fine. I was like, are you sure? Like, thought you guys would miss me a little more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like amazing. My mom always says like, where are your roots? And we're going to be stable, but like you go like grow your tree, grow your branches. And oh, like, I love that. They're so supportive. And like, that is, it, we're so lucky to be able to, you know, have that, have the solid foundation. Um, but yeah, that's always like a tough thing. And something I'm like thinking about more now, which is, which is crazy. But um, on the same topic, I guess, going into the creative field as as you, as a person who's obviously a brown woman, do you feel a sort of pressure to capitalize on that, play identity politics, talk about the mango trees, the healthy <laughs> food, the all that? Because I know, like, especially on TikTok when I'm posting, if I'm not actively talking about being a Desi woman, then people are like, oh, she's so not proud of her culture. But if I am actively talking about it, then I'm boxed into someone who only talks about that. And for me, representation is all about like, hey, here I am living my life. I love myself and I happen to be a Daisy woman and I happen to be killing it versus constantly having to shove that down people's throats. What's your relationship with that specifically in creative endeavors? It's super similar to yours, actually. Like, I feel like it's really easy to tokenize ourselves because our you know our smelly lunch boxes are true to our history and they are easy to write about and I'm I, as much as we're talking about being creative I'm not that creative when it comes to <laughs> uh, to writing and so I only can write about myself in a very egotistical way so I, I only draw from those experiences and at times I'm like Ugh. it only was a kind of new concept for me that something like um like like yeah like holy face masks and school lunches were kind of tokenizing and becoming this thing that everyone was talking about which felt really weird to digest because it wasn't the case when I first was realizing it like when I first was like you know one of my neighbors like Febreze to me before I went to school because I smelled like my mom's cooking and it was like and it was an Indian person and it was oh my god yeah and it's like it's sad to me that's like trauma I think yeah right so (laughs) That is insane to me. Oh my God. It's so weird. And I don't know. It's it's kind of hard. And I'm sure you have the same challenge of like, these these are my truths and I want to share them, but I don't want them because they're watered down in culture right now. Do I share them right now? And so I don't have a good answer. I think it's something I'm still exploring. It's something that like, in a way I'm letting my writing kind of take me to those areas when they do. Like I can write about being a child of immigrants, but I am really good about writing about heartbreak and weight loss as well. And so I think- thinking of my culture as like a lens to which I tell those stories is helpful versus being like, you know, the kicker of the story is that I'm Indian. Yeah. Yeah. Which there's just like, I feel like there's so much to us and that's like one piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, But of course, there's even people who are telling us, I don't know if you've gotten this yet. Were you born here? I was born here. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been told by people that like, I like don't call yourself a child of 
or yeah, don't really bring up the immigrant mentality when you weren't born in India and didn't and then moved here. Like only your parents were. And so it's even this question of like, are you enough of someone who's had enough? And oh, it's exhausting to try and figure out how what level of brown to be sometimes. Oh, totally. Because there's this whole third culture, right? That's developed because to people in India, I'm never gonna be Indian. I'm going to be the American girl, right? Like my accent, yes. the, everything. Um, and then when I'm here, I'm never to my white friends going to be just like another one of them because I'm I'm their daisy friend right and it's like this constant again push and pull of like where do I fit in and which is why I think it's so special to have other you know friends who are like sim in similar boats as you um and that's like something I always kind of think about when I'm when I'm making friends when I'm talking to people and for me it's like I feel very comfortable in that identity now but it's interesting having people perceive me on the internet now and be like oh she oh, yeah. she only hangs out with white people if they see one post of me in my in my roommates or uh. you know, there's like this constant like need now for me to explain myself and be like no 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 like guys like I also have you know and it's just like I actually don't need to prove myself to any of these people because I feel very comfortable in my identity but I think the second you start putting any sort of creative stuff out there even like my push and pull would like the parts of my culture I don't necessarily agree oh, with. Oh my god! Or yeah. like that doesn't mean I'm not proud of it as a whole. It's just that often you have critiques for the things that you love because you pay attention to them, close attention to them, and you care. I I'm so curious because feedback of at that level, the level that you get it on all the platforms you're on, is not normal. Mm-hmm. Has getting that constant stream of feedback like it's clearly impacted? I'm sure how you think about it, but like has it impact? Has it impacted actually how you? practice and show your culture and your relationship with the Indian culture or do you feel like it's more like internal versus like your actions are not really changing it's just how you think about them I think sometimes they um sometimes they come up very differently than other times I remember this past year I was living with six of my closest friends who I love dearly and around Diwali time I, I didn't post anything on Instagram or anything because I didn't get to go home and celebrate the volley last year. And I got a lot of comments that were like, this, this girl is so whitewashed. She only hangs out with her white friends and like didn't post anything for the volley and all this stuff. And, and meanwhile, I'd like FaceTime my parents and cried to them. And my roommates had surprised me with like Agarbati in my dorm room, oh. like all this stuff that obviously I don't put on the internet because it's so intimate. Like to me, that was such an intimate thing. And we like my roommate surprised me with dinner reservations at an Indian restaurant. And like, I don't put a lot of that on the internet. And I remember getting a comment about it. And then I was like, wait, wait, should I post, should I post this stuff? So they know yeah. that like I care, but, but it was like kind of interesting because I was like, I actually don't care what they really think about my relationship with that because I know about it. And, and then I got another comment about, again, like the people hanging out with, and it's just really because I don't post a lot of my friends like I think that's not the internet's business to see who I live with hang out with or anything like that but every now and then if they do see someone in the background my videos or like I got a comment like I'm sure she only dates white guys and stuff like this it does kind of affect the way you even view yourself or like are critical of yourself sure um, which of course like nothing they ever say is true um right but, but it's like yeah you stop viewing yeah. it you start viewing yourself as like this person where it's like do I am I being transactional or I don't know I feel like it's such a different way that I I I'm I because I have more of like a I think like tech following and not like a general following yeah um I don't know maybe I do but I don't get too much of like the pushback on like why didn't you say this yet 
I think the fact that you do it probably it's it's just like a whole different level of like you can't just now you just can't relate with your culture. You have to express it. You need to be nuanced about it. You need to like uh, go get ahead of it and get behind it and not over index <laughs> yeah. on it and not tokenize it. I mean, that's very difficult because I feel like that like and that's different between how when our parents had to readjust to how society identifies and associates them with the Indian culture when they came here. Like I feel like our generation just by the level of feedback we get is going to something very different. I wanted to ask, so you you write about like a plethora of things. Of course, what you do for your job is one thing, but then also on the side, you write about stuff like body image and heartbreak and things that are just like the other side of the coin. And how do you feel like that helps you either process emotions you're having or build community online? Or like, how is that cathartic or therapeutic for you? Yeah, I think like, my secret hack with creative writing is like I usually know I have something I want to say but I try to only stop writing once I say it so I guess another way to put it is I usually approach it like I want to write about losing weight and I will just kind of think of like the most visual image of me dealing with that which was I remember my mom gave me like a bag a five pound bag of flour when I lost my first five pounds and it was like the first time I had like held what I had lost and it was kind of complex because my mom gave me this bag and it was difficult and I start the story off like that and then I try and just explore how it made me feel and so I never have a goal when I write really other than to say something about a general topic and for that reason, I think people have really resonated with the fact that like a stream of consciousness and not like a beginning and end is like a more natural way to think. Like we don't think in, in five paragraph essays and I try and make sure my writing has the similar structure. Yeah. And I which think isn't it's great sometimes. No, per- per- I think that's, school. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe. I guess I've never had like a traditional writing background. I think it's beautiful. Also, when people leave like a question at the end or like something unresolved, because that's how most of my thoughts are. Most of my thoughts are unresolved. Right. So. It's nice, I think, to see that reflected. Um, And I I think your writing is beautiful and I can't wait for a book one day. Thank you. um, Whenever, you know, your timeline feels right. But yeah, I think writing about heartbreak or weight loss or all of these topics, which are so like close to the bone, are really vulnerable. Um, And have you seen like backlash from it? Have you seen anything that wasn't ideal when you put it out onto the Internet? Yeah, I would say so. Like, and it's funny, sometimes I won't tweet one of my personal blog posts. I write on Substack. It has like a really beautiful image and interface. And so I'll obviously send it to like, I have like, I think like 1,600 subscribers. I'll send it to them in their inboxes, which is super exciting. But then I won't tweet about it because I have a much bigger platform on Twitter. And those are when you can tell I wrote about something that's pretty hard or uncomfortable. Um, and so I feel like the backlash that I've only felt and the reason I sometimes don't share my personal writing on my Twitter, even though it's still out there on the Internet, is because there's a sort of overfamiliarity that exists then between like the people I report in tech, which are these really powerful venture capitalists and CEOs, and then people who read me for me. And over time, those overlaps have become bigger and bigger because I don't think all my followers only come to me for like the latest and greatest on tech. Um but I just it, it becomes this like awkward thing of like, do I want the CEO to know about my like heartbreak when I was 16 year old, years old and then bring it up on an interview in like a jokey sort of way? Like to me, that doesn't feel great. And so I'm I, I don't have I've decided to let it happen right now. And I think that might change as I get older or get more experience that I don't want everyone to know everything. But right now it's kind of just uncomfortable. Like, I hope they don't bring it up on the phone. 
um that happens honestly totally because we're also in this world of like what I like to call like faux professionalism like a while ago there was this whole thing about like if you're a doctor you shouldn't post bikini pictures on Instagram where it was Uh, like people are multifaceted right people they're human yeah they're human and like I want to work with real humans and I anticipate real humans want to work with me and and that means people have bad days. That means people have heartbreak. That means all these things while also being really good at your job. And I think that's why I asked the question because there's this like push for professionalism. The whole idea is of like, you don't show your tattoos at work. Like yeah. it, it kind of feels like that. It's like, do I want these people in tech in DC, which already like going in as a woman, you're already judged for being more emotional, da, 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 da. Do you also want them to have like the backing and the proof of like, yeah, I write about my feelings. Like that's yeah. a hard toss up. It is. And I and I will say like the positive spin I put on it is that I think a lot of like employees and first time founders and first time investors who are the people I want to write about more than, you know, the experienced people, they think that because I'm a human, I'm going to write a more thoughtful story, which I do. And I think that people seeing that I'm not just kind of this like single minded person who only cares about getting a spicy headline out on the internet has helped during a time where people struggle to trust journalists. And so I wouldn't say I write my Substacks ever to get trust, but it's been like this really like, I think beautiful side effect. And I, I remember learning like I, my, my refrain that I say when I try and convince an employee to talk to me is like empathy is my competitive advantage. And you can see that in my professional writing or my personal writing, but it took me a damn long time to think empathy could be something other than like weakness and uh, now it's like I'm like this is my only competitive advantage as a journalist and I need to lean into that or else like I don't really else I don't think I stand out honestly and so like whatever I'm the emotional advantage that is amazing (laughs) that is really really beautiful (laughs) thank you I felt that recently when people were talking about um the people at Twitter losing their jobs right and they were talking about it from a very systemic point of view and and that's what a lot of journalists did but I think at the end of the day, the ability to humanize these people who are losing their jobs as they're people with families, people who have mortgages or loans or whatever, that becomes, I think, the real story there, right? Because also that's how you get people to connect to writing because I think sometimes tech is so nebulous or abstract or really people outside of it don't care about it. And the human story is what people care about. And so I think you're totally right. I think people want to read about people and emotions and like, And I I think, especially like even in my CS classes right now, we have like this end of the year project and I I see only women kind of doing projects which actually serve human problems a lot more than like cryptography or cryptocurrency, which is like definitely there's a lot more men interested in that. And this idea of like, how do we make empathy more of a thing among among the tech crowd, right? Like, oh my God. And it's like such a stereotype that I hate to lean into, but I'm really happy you're doing what you're doing and I feel very very proud of you and like very protective of you (laughs) right back at you honestly I think like there's like this really weird pressure to be like yeah only looked at as like a buttoned up professional person and I feel like it's I don't know it's, it's it's made me feel a lot better realizing that like as a writer the best compliment that I can ever get is that my writing made someone feel heard and not in a representation sense always it could just be like I interviewed someone who they resonate with and I included a quote like I'm really good at getting people to tell me stuff that they didn't think was important 
but I'm not get, good at getting them to tell me secrets. And it's like, I'm fine with that. And I think getting more comfortable in like what my strengths are as a journalist, when journalists are known to be these like sneaky people who are smart, but you know, there's trust, there's trust loss there. And so I, I'm trying to build that and remind, remind myself that my goal is to make someone feel heard, not necessarily, you know, feel hurt all the time. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. And like thinking about like personal life, professional life, how do you feel like you're you're now on the other side of your 20s, right? How do you feel like- Oh, that's such a weird way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's awesome. I think aging is really cool. But how do you think that's like your 20s have affected your friendships, your sense of self, your, your body image? And like, what advice would you have for 18-year-old Natasha? This is like how I like to end out all my interviews. Oh like, my God, I'll cry. Um, <laughs> Oh, let me think for a second. I think like I I wrote about this like I wrote about this when I turned 26 last month and I I said something along the lines of like 21 was like my year of energy, 22 was my year of being super bold and choosing um to be kind of this person who would intern in San Francisco. 23 I was determined to move there, so I moved there. Um 24 was very independent because it was the pandemic and it was like hey for the first time in your life you're gonna learn how to be alone and 25 was intentional because I realized like what balance needed to look like and that I needed to focus on that even though I had kind of life was coming back to normal and so I don't know I feel like my 20s has been a really like push and pull relationship with like I have always identified my community as like the thing I'm most happy and thankful for in my life. But I also I'm trying to remember that like I'm the reason I have that beautiful community. It's not luck. It's not going anywhere. The group chats are not going to die overnight. And I think like my sense of self has become so much stronger in my 20s. It's been less like I think this person or this group is the reason I'm happy. It's more like the life I've built for myself is the reason I'm happy. And I wish 18 year old Natasha knew that. So she would stop spending time with shitty people because <laughs> yeah. I, I think I just define myself so much by other people at that point as, as every 18 year old does. <laughs> yeah. I think, and that's like also programmed into you at that age, right? It's like your friend group in school and all of that. But I think that's cool. Exactly. I, I didn't even think like, I remember like I'm in a relationship now. And I remember like before I got into a relationship, I was like, I need one. That's what I need right now. That's who I am. Now that I'm in one, it has somehow made me a more independent person. Like he is, he has taken away so much of the stress and insecurity and like drama that's been in my back of my head. And in a weird way, I never would have expected that dating someone would make me closer to who I am, but not to get too cheesy, but I feel like that's really like an, another huge surprise of my 20s is like, oh, it's not relationships didn't fix me by any means. It just it brought me it 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 it, it wasn't like the solution I thought I needed. It was just kind of like, oh, I realize how dope I am through this relationship, too. Yeah. And like at the end of the day, that's also what you want your relationship to be right, like an amplifier um, of all the other good things and good values in your life. I think that's awesome. And then the very last question is this podcast is called Show Me How Good It Gets. What are your goals for the future? What are you trying to accomplish? Ooh. Um, what is like as good as it gets for you and in, in, in your life? Oh my gosh. I love, first of all, I love the name of the podcast. It's so good. Thank you. Um, and I want to know the other names that you're going through at some point because I'm okay. sure they're good ones. I, I think for me, like my dream is to like write a book, not because I want to say like I'm an author, but I really do want to write something for the challenges we're talking about today and just like what it's like to be a 20 something brown woman in the U S and 
to be able to have that be like a legacy of mine would be insane to me and books don't disappear and I just really want something to hold on to and be like this is a snapshot not full, fully encompassing of our experience I also just like I, yeah I, I don't know I want every day to I want to make someone feel heard I want to be like someone who people associate with like true empathy because I know it's my weak, it's my strength but I think I the more people who know that like the better job I can do long term um yeah I think that's it I think I, my parents would be proud I feel I l- would love for my parents to be proud they are but I would love for that to always be kind of like what is my north star that's amazing I I would be so excited to read your book and I know that's coming like I think you're a really fabulous writer and you you make me feel seen you make me feel heard and you are able to communicate in a very um in a way full of levity I think like I think it's I think it's hard to make really heavy things feel light and palatable um but but still have like the same integrity and you you do that and I think you're amazing so I'm really excited to see everything you do. Thank you. We have to do drinks so I can talk about um so so I can interview you for my book and so we can like just talk about all these things um a little more tipsier. <laughs> yeah, I know and I was I like I don't think the maybe the people listening know that but we've never met in person so I'm excited to finally meet in person. Yeah, that is the quirk I think of how good of an interviewer you clearly are because I feel like I was truly just getting to know you over this conversation and hopefully vice versa and thank yes. you Jessica for the questions because I yeah, now I feel like I just yeah, I feel like we're friends so it's of too late course. to go back now yeah is there anything else you want to say uh plug ju- just like how amazing you are honestly like oh. I've been following your work for longer than you probably know and it's been really cool to see you grow and be so crisp with your like words and what you want to say you could do so much and I love how you're focusing and prioritizing it so yeah I will I will think of people that if you ever want more people to interview on the show but um I'm so excited to share it with everyone that's amazing thank you so much and I will leave all your links in the description of the episode so Substack, Twitter um is there anything else you want to plug like an Instagram or um, something maybe yeah I'll I'll send you my Instagram. Why not? Okay, amazing. And then I'll put all of those so people can follow along with your journey. And then eventually, when you publish a book, they can buy your book. Yay! Thank you so much. <laughs> it is so lovely to meet you. And I will message you when we're in Chicago next. And do the same for SF as well, please. And that's a wrap. Thank you guys for hanging out with me and listening to this week's episode. If you want more, follow at Show Me How Good It Gets podcast. I read all the DMs I get on there. And then my personal Instagram account is at Malvika Bot and my TikTok is at Maltalks. If you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a rating, preferably a five-star rating. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I hope you can write us a fun little review and write us there as well. Once again, thank you guys for hanging out. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.